0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's a special interview and lecture on the Paul Leslie Hour. This informational episode entitled The Real Karl Marx is an in-depth talk about German philosopher and political theorist Karl Marx. The Real Karl Marx presents noted speaker Dr. Douglas Young, a novelist, columnist, and educator. There's much to learn about Karl Marx but we ask you to consider going to www.thepaullesley.com support. You can help get more of this content available to everyone. So, let's begin.
1: Today's special episode is an interview of Dr. Douglas Young, inspired by a lecture he has given many times on Marxism. We will seek to answer the potent question, Who was the real Karl Marx? In doing so, we hope to see more clearly this picture of Karl Marx and what you have called one of the most profoundly influential philosophies. Dr. Douglas Young, thank you so much for this interesting lecture-combined interview.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Paul. I'm honored to be here.
1: It's a pleasure. Do most people know who the real Karl Marx was?
2: I don't think so. Uh, My guess is that uh, most folks have no idea who Karl Marx was, and uh, there are probably a lot of more educated people who think that they would recognize the name, but uh, they really don't know anything about him. Some folks would know that he's the father of communism, uh, but that's about it, I think.
1: Can the theory of communism be summed up
2: succinctly i think so i believe that communism is a political ideology or philosophy or school of thought or secular religion which holds that all capitalism is utterly evil and the entire capitalist system must be completely destroyed and replaced with a new one in which uh, the order of the day is Government-enforced equality of results for all. What in 2022 America is uh, called equity. Mm. Karl Marx, if I might add, Marx wrote that communism can be summed up in one sentence. Abolish all private property. Marx also wrote that my object in life is to dethrone God and uh, destroy capitalism. Mm. Was there anything
1: from Karl Marx's early years that you believe influenced him in formulating his belief system?
2: Yes. Marx was uh, born in 1818 in Germany. He was the son of a very prosperous, uh, successful attorney, Marx grew up in very bourgeois surroundings, ironically, for the father of communism. It's, it's fascinating, I think, that every single significant communist leader of whom I'm aware, either a theoretical, philosophical one, or a political one, grew up in very bourgeois circumstances. Um, even though communism extols the proletariat, the industrial working class, or poor people, or like in uh, Asia, uh, peasant farmers. Uh, I can't think of a single significant communist who was reared anything but middle or upper class, whether you're talking about Marx, Ingalls. I mean, Engels came from a wealthy family of uh, t- textile mill owners in England. Um, he liked to fox hunt and drink champagne. Uh, If you look at uh, Vladimir Lenin, came from one of the first families of Moscow. Um, Now, Stalin was poor, uh, but uh, Trotsky certainly was not. Uh, Mao uh, and Deng uh, and the present Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, they all came from bourgeois circumstances. Uh, Fidel Castro was the illegitimate son of a wealthy plantation owner in Cuba, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, Uh, came from uh, bourgeois circumstances in Argentina. So Marx was extraordinarily blessed to be brought up in uh, a 10-room home, uh, the son of a successful attorney who owned wine vineyards. Uh, I don't think Marx ever uh, worked, uh, had a physical day's labor in his life. So his family could afford him uh, with an excellent education. And uh, he would ultimately uh, go to the University of Berlin. And so uh, through his university studies, he was exposed to the whole range of Enlightenment uh, philosophs or philosophers. And he would be profoundly influenced by a number of the radical Enlightenment uh people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau of France, uh, the, patron, the philosophical patron saint of the French Revolution who um, uh, abhorred uh, private property. They uh, thought that private property induced greed and inequality of results. Um, Marx, uh, I think, was also influenced by uh, Rousseau's uh, belief in uh, the general will theory of government that a few enlightened the elites. Uh, have the, the right, the moral duty to rule uh, on behalf of the great masses. Um, Marx also was very influenced uh, in his university studies by Friedrich Hegel, the great German uh, philosopher who believed that all of history, all of humanity, is an endless struggle between a thesis and its antithesis, and Marx would adapt this to uh, Marxism or communism, with the notion that you have class conflict between the bourgeoisie, the uh, upper and middle class capitalist property owning haves, uh, versus the downtrodden industrial proletariat, the have nots. Um, Marx saw life in terms of opposites. He was uh, someone who was an absolutist. He saw the world divided into stark contrast between black and white, good and evil. There were no variations of gray in the Marxist worldview. And I think that he was really influenced by Hegel in that regard. Marx also uh, was very much influenced by the secular nature of his upbringing, uh, which I find really intriguing because Marx came from a long, long line of uh, rabbis on both sides of his family tree. I mean, historically, the, the Marx family was extremely devoutly Jewish uh, and Orthodox Jewish. In fact, both of Marx's grandfathers were Orthodox rabbis. But Marx's father may well have been the first secular Marx in the Marx family tree. Uh, his father, as I said earlier, became an attorney. And so Marx grew up in a secular household without the influence of uh, religion. Um, So uh, he he did not grow up religious. Now, his father, uh, I think, to protect his own career and to protect his children from the virulent anti-Semitism of Europe at that time, especially in places like Germany, the Ukraine, Russia, Marx, uh senior Marx's father uh had the family converted to Lutheranism uh which was the the state religion of Germany um and uh but even though uh, I believe the children were baptized Lutheran they did not have a, a a Christian or a Jewish upbringing and so Marx uh I think that made it a lot easier for Marx to really uh rebel against religion uh, because he didn't have any Judeo-Christian roots coming up. Um, he had no emotional connection mm. to religion. So I think the, the secular uh, nature of his upbringing, and also the, the, the fact that his affluent family could afford to give him an outstanding education, um, and the fact that Marx came up, uh, an upper-middle-class, thoroughly bourgeois elite, Marx was a very arrogant person who, as the old saying would go about a lot of arrogant people, did not suffer fools gladly. And Marx, uh, I think, had a notion that life would be best for everyone if the most educated, enlightened elites, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's general will theory again, if the most enlightened, educated elites like Marx were really calling the shots Hmm. if you had to
1: describe Karl Marx Mm -hmm. what words come to mind
2: he's a man of significant contrast Um, let me be fair on the plus side I don't think there's any doubt but that Karl Marx was an exceptionally brilliant person quite possibly a genius Um, He uh, was voluminous in his research. Um, He was someone who was intensely ambitious. And I think ambition is a virtue. Obviously, it can be taken too far. Uh, Many people do. But I believe that without ambition, Uh, very little would be accomplished. I mean, with the exception of Jesus Christ, can we think of any great figure of history who wasn't absolutely eat up with ambition? Ambition is what got mankind out of the caves and straw huts. Uh, It was, you know, the young man having the ambition to want to be a big success, to have uh, more uh, accolades and material success than anyone else and to be able to get the girl in his dreams. It's, you know, that kind of person who is someone who's going to strive, who's going to work hard, who's going to achieve, and who's going to move humanity forward. So Marx was very ambitious. Marx was also not just for himself. Uh, but uh, for mankind. I don't question uh, the sincerity of Marx in wanting to tangibly, physically move and intellectually move mankind several giant leaps forward. I, I think he was quite Nietzschean in that regard. Um, Marx was someone who was intensely passionate. I don't question uh, his sincere motive, uh, wanting to dramatically improve the lot of the mass of people, um, particularly the industrial working class, who he was convinced were horribly exploited. Um, But Marx was also someone who, for all of his brilliance, for all of his uh, discipline, massive amount of research, Marx was also someone who was so passionate, was so prone to fits of emotion, that I think that for all of his intellect, he allowed his emotions to overwhelm his intellect. Um, Aristotle, the, the great ancient Greek philosopher, uh, wrote that uh, revolutionary change is often connected to... Um, emotions or or aspects of people's personal lives. Let me read you a a quote here from Aristotle. Aristotle wrote, Men start revolutionary changes for reasons connected with their private lives. Hmm. And Marx was a rageaholic. Marx, I I think Sigmund Freud would have had a field day with Marx. Because Marx, I think, is the classic poster boy for someone who allowed, however brilliant he was, he allowed his emotional rage to dominate his theories. Marx, even though he did a massive amount of research, and he really is deserving of the title of the father of the social sciences, uh, Marx uh, believed that it was not enough for a philosopher to merely come up with a highfalutin uh theory that read well on paper, but Marx believed that every theory of a philosopher, uh, every idea about what is the ideal type of economy or government or social system, he believed that every idea must be backed up with data, with empirical evidence, quantitative data, statistics, facts and figures. Uh, and, And he did have a massive amount of facts and figures to try to prove his theories, but Marx engaged in a massive amount of cognitive dissonance. Marx had a fixed idea of the way the world operated. And Marx would not allow any countervailing facts and figures or history to interfere with that. Marx was a classic ideologue. A realistic, true scholar is one who has a theory as to how things work but when he conducts his research when he gathers his evidence he does not ignore evidence that contradicts his theory he embraces all the evidence whatever it is and if the evidence contradicts a, a true scholar's theory he will then rewrite his theory he'll adjust his theory he'll change his theory to fit the evidence a true scholar a realistic scholar make sure that his theory uh, is appropriate to the facts, to reality. But an ideologue is one who goes into research with blinders on. He's engaged in cognitive dissonance. He deliberately ignores any and all evidence that refutes his theory. He perverts reality to fit his preconceived intellectual theory. And that was Karl Marx. So Marx ignored all data that in any way questioned his theory. He just looked at the facts and figures that backed him up. So, And Marx did this, I think, because Marx, as brilliant, as much of a genius as he was intellectually, he was a captive, he was a creature of his emotions, and he was a rageaholic. Marx fell out with just about everybody in his life. Whenever he was the secular, philosophical, political equivalent of a religious fanatic. Whenever anyone disagreed with him, for Marx, this was apostasy. This was blasphemy. Uh, and uh, Marx was very much an Old Testament God. Um, Marx was not very forgiving. Um, so Marx, I think is a poster boy for the kind of angry intellectual who allowed uh, his rage to really drive his theories. I think his rage, his temper, his emotions really were the uh, the subconscious, I think Freud would say they were the subconscious engine beneath the surface of that iceberg, beneath the sea, really driving so many of his theories, as smart as he was. Um, so uh, he was very much an intolerant person who was not open uh, to open debate. Um, people say that, well, true Marxism, true Communism has never really been tried. Uh, uh, Marx would have never approved all the violence, all the, uh, the mass murder, uh, the repression that's been carried out in his name. Uh, I think Marx would have. I mean, Marx... Uh, was very pro-violence. He, he wanted violent revolution. He wanted to assassinate the Kaiser, the, the uh, king of, of, of Germany. Uh, uh, Marx uh, was someone uh, who had a, a violent temper. Hmm.
1: It's been said that we are what we do. Yes. What could be said of how Karl, Sm- Karl Marx spent
2: his time on the plus side, to be fair, he did spend a great deal of time, uh, working, uh, particularly in the museum in London. Um, he, uh, let's backtrack a little bit. He's born in 1818, uh, in uh, Germany, in the city of Trier, in southwestern Germany. And, uh, he goes to the University of Berlin. He's a professor. But he's the kind of a, uh, uh, he gets a PhD, he becomes a professor, but he's the kind of professor who is not really interested in lecturing to his students and in, in having a give-and-take open discussion. No, he he conceives of himself as uh, an intellectual uh, prophet uh, for communism, for his economic and political and social worldview. Um, He is an evangelist, a political activist for his theories. Uh, He doesn't last long in academia. He's so committed to revolution that uh, he has a a revolutionary publication um, and he wants to assassinate the Kaiser. He wants to overthrow uh, the government of of Germany. Um, He is hes running a revolutionary newspaper. And he's ultimately exiled from Germany. The, the Germans don't want him there because they see him as too radical. So he moves to Paris, historically the city of political exiles um, and, and of so many radical philosophers including a lot of communists. Jean-Paul Sartre, um, Deng Xiaoping became a communist in Paris. Uh, uh Ayatollah Rahala Khomeini, uh, when he was exiled by the Shah from Iran, would uh, go to Paris where he would make revolutionary tapes sent back to uh, uh, the Shahs of uh, Iran. Well, in Paris, uh, Marx would uh, have another uh, revolutionary newspaper. But then when the uh, revolution of 1848 in France uh, came about, uh, the, uh, the government kicked Marx out of France, saying this guy is too radical. So Marx, in 1848, moves to London, where he would spend uh, the, the next 35 and the last 35 years of his life until his death uh, at not quite 65 in 1883. So the lion's share, the vast majority of the work, of the writings uh, of Karl Marx, took place in London. And what he would do in London uh, for three and a half decades would be when he would work, he would go uh, to the London Museum uh, where he would do a a tremendous amount of research and and writing. Uh, Now, um, and he did a lot of work in that regard. I mean, he certainly wrote a lot of books uh, and a lot of uh, uh, articles in academic journals. Uh, He and his writing partner, Brother Communist Friedrich Engels, Marx was the main ideas man, Um, but uh, Marx was uh, someone who did not keep regular hours. He never had a job for the last 35 years of his life. Um, He uh, smoked too much, cheap cigars. He drank way too much. Um, He would, uh, sometimes on his way home from the London Museum, uh, he would stop in at each pub on the way home and drink a pint. Uh, but the problem was there were 18 pubs on the way home and he would get terribly drunk. He would sometimes in the streets of London, he would throw rocks at the street lamps. He really hated the bourgeoisie. Uh, he blamed uh, the bourgeoisie, the capitalist middle and upper classes, for his dire poverty in London. The fact is... Uh, Marx, uh, after he uh, was no longer working on this uh, newspaper in Paris, for the next 35 years of his life, he never had a job. Um, so he was not bringing home a paycheck, and his books and his journal articles were not making uh, much money at all, and he was deeply embittered by this. He was enraged by this, and uh, he kept a really Poor personal hygiene, he didn't bathe, Uh, and because of that, uh, he suffered from carbuncles or boils around his body, even on his genitals and on his uh, tail. Um, In fact, the the carbuncles, the boils on his butt were so bad when he was writing Das Kapital, uh, which is the communist bible, Uh, it's over a thousand pages, Uh, that's his most massive critique of capitalism. Uh, Published in 1867, well, Marx couldn't even finish Das Kapital seated. He had to finish it standing up. And he would take a razor blade and bleed the boils on his Mm. rump, and he would be shouting at the bourgeoisie. And for the man who uh, thought that he had discovered the holy grail of economic theory, uh, he thought that he was the greatest economic genius of all time, the father of scientific socialism, the one economic theory that was backed up entirely by scientific, uh, empirical, statistical research, he was somehow never able to make the the intellectual leap from the uh, the notion that you know maybe there's a connection between his not getting a job and his family being in dire poverty. That was apparently an intellectual bridge too far. Um, The irony is Marx never visited a factory. He never ran a fruit stand. He knew nothing about the practical realities of running a business. And most of his correspondence with Friedrich Engels uh, boiled down to, please send money. (laughs) I mean, the irony is Marx was able to feed his wife, Jenny, and their three daughters, even though they were living in dire poverty, and, and he died with only 250 pounds to his name. But Marx was able to financially get by um, by welfare checks coming from Ingalls. And the irony of that is Friedrich Ingalls was very wealthy uh, because the Ingalls family owned a whole fleet of, wait for it, textile mills throughout England. And textile mills were the most hated of all the laissez-faire, almost utterly unregulated by government, capitalist businesses that employed the most dirt-poor women and children uh, doing horrible physical labor so many hours a day for almost no wages, um, and in all the correspondence between Marx and Engels, Marx never asked that Engels ever institute a single Marxist-Communist reform in any of these textile mills and and Engels never wanted any reforms he he never instituted any uh, because they didn't want to do anything to harm the capitalist goose providing their golden eggs Hmm. Um, so Marx led an irregular kind of existence I mean he didn't have a regular job so he worked when he felt like it drank too much smoked too much he was in poor health Uh, was uh, to be fair He loved his wife and his daughters, um, uh, and they were close to him, but uh, he was not a good provider. um, And even as a family man, critics would argue uh, he was hardly model, not just in terms of failing to provide for the family, but he was unfaithful to his long-suffering wife, Jenny, who when creditors would come to the house, he would hide, and he would get Jenny sweet talk them into delaying when the debts had to be paid. Uh, it's ironic. Marx, the man who loved the working class, even though he was quite poor for the majority of his life, he physically he didn't want to get near any working class people. You know, he sort of loved them in the aggregate, but personally wanted nothing to do with them. He thought of himself as the smartest guy around, uh, who was too good to associate with working class people. Um, and uh, the only working class person he ever knew uh, as an adult uh, was the family maid who he did not pay and who he impregnated, hmm. but he would not claim paternity of the child. He got Engels to claim paternity of the child. The child was given away, uh, grew up to be a carpenter, but Marx had nothing to do with him. And we only know about Marx fathering this illegitimate child Uh, from the fact that Engels confessed on his deathbed that he was not actually the father, that it was Marx. So uh, Marx was uh, someone who led a rather irregular uh, existence. So from your
1: reading of some of Karl Marx's writings, like Das Kapital and the Communist Mm -hmm. Manifesto, is there something that stands out to you? Uh,
2: Marx's readings, Marx's writings are rather turgid. Um, the Bible of Communism, the most important Marxist book of all time, the book that is to communism what the Bible is to uh, Jews and Christians, uh, is Das Kapital. It's, uh, it's the over a thousand page magnum opus of Marx and Engels. Das Kapital is German for capital or money. Um, and it is one long indictment of all things capitalist. Uh, it's got a massive amount of data, and you talk about some dry, boring reading. Um, my sweet Cheyenne's late father, God rest his soul, uh, he was a lifelong, devoted Maoist, communist, uh, Chinese revolutionary. Uh, He was so proud that he read all of Das Kapital. God bless him. Um, If I was to urge uh, people to read just one book of Marx, it would be Marx and Engels' uh, The Communist Manifesto, which is a 58-page cliff notes of communism, if you will, published in 1848, the, the first year he was in London. And um, the Communist uh, Manifesto uh, cuts right to the quick. Uh, It is the most readable, the least chopped with statistics. Uh, It was designed to appeal to uh, working uh, blue-collar industrial uh, laborers who had some education, who were literate. Uh, And you you get all the basics of communism uh, most all the basics from uh, the Communist Manifesto. But Marx was, uh, from my perspective, was not a good writer to his credit. He did do a lot of research, but again, as mentioned earlier, he studiously avoided, uh, including in his writings, any research that in the least bit contradicted uh, his theories. What do you think was truly behind
1: his theories? What was the core of what was driving his
2: fervor? I think, in a word, it would be rage. Marx was like, I think, a lot of academics. Uh, Marx was extremely gifted intellectually, but yet Marx was terribly frustrated in his life. Uh, He grew up uh, in extraordinary privilege, especially for a a child of the 19th century, when and where he was. I mean, he was extremely affluent growing up. And yet, even though he was this great student and he was a professor and he was brilliant, and he got a lot of books published and, and journal articles published, but he lived his life in in dire poverty as an adult and you know it 's one thing to go to, to be living in dire poverty from birth it 's all you 've ever known you accept it, but to have been living in a ten room home in complete prosperity, and then, as an adult you 're so poor uh, that and you don 't have the comforts of religion because you hate religion, you don't believe in any god, you believe this life is it, uh, that caused Marx deep abiding bitterness. And the fact that the capitalist system afforded so much wealth uh, and and middle class status to people with far, far less intelligence, far, far less education, far, far less culture uh, than than what Marx thought of himself as having, uh, infuriated him to no end. Uh, Marx, I think, hated chaos. He hated freedom because he didn't like the choices that people made with their freedom. Um, Marx was very Rousseauian and Nietzschean in that he believed that an elite class of people at the top of the pyramid, very, very much like Plato, he believed that an elite class of people like himself should rule things. Um, he believed that people left to ourselves, uh, we devolve into a capitalist order where you have economic freedom, where people do what they want, and there is inevitably massive inequality and chaos. And Marx wanted a very orderly system where everybody is equal, where you don't have these vast gaps between the haves and have-nots. And uh, Marx believed that an egalitarian system would be the only fair system. Uh, But I think Marx still thought of himself and other educated elites as the people who should really run the show. And so Marx uh, hated that people had the freedom to think differently. Remember, he was completely intolerant of people who had different points of view. Uh, And Marx was quite frank that uh, when uh, a communist revolution came about, That uh, racial trash, as he called it, uh, would of necessity have to perish in what he referred to as a revolutionary holocaust. So he wanted massive violence, lethal violence, against entire groups of people uh, based solely on their group status, uh, who he thought were inferior, who he thought were going to uh, contradict or defy what he thought was the egalitarian order. Uh, and he wanted an elite to impose this on people. How
1: did Marx believe communism could be brought on? You, you mentioned violence here. Right.
2: There are two answers to that. The professional, philosophical, theoretical, official public Marx was quite clear in his writings Uh, regarding his belief that there is a natural, inexorable, inevitable, unavoidable economic evolution to the history of mankind. This is sort of the Marxist or communist secular economic equivalent of John Calvin and John Knox's uh, predestination theory uh, for uh, Protestant Christians. Marx believed that history is an unavoidable progression of stages of economic uh, development for mankind. And we cannot avoid these stages no matter what we do. No, it, the individual is irrelevant. Marx, like leftists, like communists, at least ever since the time of the French Revolution of, the, of 1789, Marx thought in terms of groups and larger, massive societal forces of history guiding us all, all us individuals, in these massive tidal waves. Um, This is very much like the discipline of sociology and, and Karl Marx, along with Emil Durkheim as a founding father of sociology. Marx believed that there are certain stages of economic history, and this theory, communist theory, is called dialectical materialism. And Marx believed that dialectical materialism illustrated to us how a communist revolution would come about. He believed that history teaches us that uh, the first stage of human history is the primitive hunter-gathering phase. That's when uh, we are basically cavemen, or just beyond cavemen. Uh, We hunt uh, for our food, we hunt for meat, uh, we gather berries uh, and, and you know, vegetables. And then we, we develop, uh, we go into the, we evolve into the second uh, economic stage of dialectical materialism, uh, which is feudalism. And this is when we develop crop row agriculture, and from that we develop eventually plantations. And uh, we have a completely agricultural dom- agriculturally dominated society. And we have plantation owners who own uh, massive numbers of slaves. We have channel human uh, slavery. Um, And then from uh, feudalism, the third stage in dialectical materialism is uh, capitalism. And with capitalism, we see the development of all kinds of non-agricultural businesses. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are small businesses. And uh, with capitalism, uh, with the rise of capitalism, we see the development of uh, more cities and uh, shops. And then from capitalism, we develop into the fourth stage of dialectical materialism, which is the industrial revolution, uh, the industrial phase of capitalism, where small businesses become increasingly superseded and dominated by great big businesses. Uh, centered around ever-larger factories with industrial equipment. And it would be in the industrial phase, the Industrial Revolutionary chapter of dialectical materialism, when capitalism would produce the worst contrasts between the has and have-nots, between the bourgeoisie, the capitalist property-owning haves, uh, who owned the factories, who owned the businesses, and the poor, downtrodden, oppressed, ruthlessly exploited proletarians, or the proletariat, the proles, the industrial uh, factory workers, the laboring class. And, and of course, uh, this would be extended particularly by Chairman Mao in China and Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam to include the mass number of peasants. Uh, and Lenin and uh, Trotsky and Stalin would include the peasants as well in uh, czarist Russia. Because Russia was certainly not industrial, nor was China when they had their revolutions. That's the great irony. No uh, communist country, no country that had a communist revolution ever had one come about the way that Marx theorized it would through dialectical materialism. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Well, in the industrial phase of dialectical materialism, when you have the worst excesses of capitalism, when you've got uh, the working class working incredibly long hours, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week with pitifully low wages, no labor unions, no voting rights, um, no welfare for the poor, I mean, just horrible conditions. Uh, the, the, so many of the factory workers in the London of Marxist time were living in dilapidated, crowded, disease-ridden, rat-infested uh, uh, company-owned housing right next to the, po- the pollution coming out of the factories. Uh, and they were buying their groceries, their goods from company-owned stores. I mean, they were really, and they were deeply in debt to the factory owners. They were really the urban equivalent of, of rural southern uh, sharecroppers in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And, uh, gosh, to be fired at, at one of these factories uh, was to automatically uh, sentence yourself and your wife and children to homelessness. And so it was, uh, Marx believed the fix was in. He thought things were so bad that a revolution, a violent revolution and uprising of the downtrodden oppressed proletariat was inevitable. And so the next stage of dialecticalism would be a workers' revolt. A, a revolution of the proletariat, in which they would uh, take up arms and they would violently overthrow and murder the bourgeoisie, take over the factories, take over all the means of production. Um, and Marx believed that there were four means of production, capital, land, raw materials, and labor. And the bourgeoisie had a monopoly on all four. And because uh, the bourgeoisie controlled the money, It was the only class with the money to afford to buy the land from which to extract the raw materials uh, and on which to build the factories in which to employ the laborers to process those raw materials into finished consumer products to make lots of money when they sell them. Marx believed that because the bourgeoisie had a monopoly on the four means of production, the bourgeoisie controlled the entire economy. And the government was but a puppet, a pawn of the bourgeoisie. Uh, Marx's theory of economic determinism holds that all uh, change, all political, social, and every other kind of change in society is predetermined and dictated by economic change. And Marx believed that once the industrial working class overthrows the bourgeoisie, destroys it, will then enter the next phase of dialectic materialism, which is uh, the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat, in which the proletariat is now running the factories, is now you know, manning the suites, if you will, uh, is controlling uh, the government. But Marx believed that this would be a, a, a brief phase, it was the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat. Then, from the dictator, the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat, we would evolve. We will evolve. Marx believed uh, into the socialist phase of dialectical materialism. This is when the government uh, owns and operates the biggest industries, the the major industries, um, and then uh, somehow, and Marx never gave us a clue as to how this would happen, but. From the socialist phase of economic evolution, we, the, the state would somehow miraculously wither away and we would evolve into the final, lasting, permanent, ultimate stage of human economic and social development, which will be communism, a stateless, classless utopia, a heaven-on-earth utopia in which everybody in society would equally own all property. All property would be equally shared and shared alike. And the ruling ethos would be, perhaps Mark's most famous quote, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Everybody will only do whatever he wants. If you want to be a plumber, you get to be a plumber. If if he wants to be uh, a car salesman, he gets to be a car salesman. If she wants to be a doctor, she gets to be a doctor, whatever. Everybody does whatever he wants. Everybody contributes to the greater good of the whole, whatever he feels like, and everybody shares and shares alike equally. Uh, now, Vladimir Lenin, not good Beetle John, bad commie Vlad. Vladimir Lenin uh, was quite frank when he declared, and let me... Uh, read his quote, Lenin complained that, quote, uh, there is hardly a word on the economics of socialism to be found in Marx's work. And so to uh, communists and other leftists who say, oh, but all the horrible economic catastrophe uh, that was every single communist economy in history um, you know that uh, they were not truly communist societies. Well, if you read the writings of Lenin, uh, and if you read Marx, you know Lenin was telling the truth, Marx offers zero hint, no suggestion, much less any kind of a program or ten point you know set of guidelines as to how this temporary dictatorship of the proletariat is supposed to, evolve into socialism and then especially into communism. So in practice, every communist government in history has been a Marxist-Leninist regime. Marx provides the theoretical foundation for the communist uh, revolution, but Lenin really created the, the model for every communist government. Uh, And the way it worked was because communist economics and practice have never worked because there is no incentive for people to get ahead. If everybody working in the factory uh, is getting paid the same number of rubles at the end of the month, no matter how productive they are. I mean, if Paul Leslie is coming to work early every day, is working his tail off and is producing 10 times more widgets an hour than young, who's coming to work two hours late, drunk or hung over, but at the end of the month, Mr. Leslie is not making one more ruble than Mr. Young. Why? I mean, Paul's a smart dude. He's not going to continue to work hard. So the communist economies had the the lowest, the worst productivity rates in the world. Their economies were basket cases. And people living in communist countries didn't want communism. And so every communist government quickly uh, devolved into a totalitarian regime having total government control over every aspect of people's lives to avoid an anti-communist revolution to prevent the inevitable resistance to it i mean lenin had to lead along with trotsky leon trotsky uh the the uh, red white civil war in russia in which millions of people were killed immediately the russian people wanted to overthrow this brutal communist government so in fact every communist government has had to resort to brutality to stay in power and in fact, uh, every communist government has been dominated by a small elite, either one man or a group uh, dictatorship uh, in which this sort of educated, technocratic, intellectual class of people has dictated economics and everything else uh, to everyone else. Um, so that was Marx's theory as to how a communist revolution would come about. In practice, Marx was always extremely impatient for revolution, he wanted revolution right here, right now. Whether or not the country he was in was, according to his own theory of dialectical materialism, remotely ready for revolution. Marx, the greatest economic prophet of all time, he believed, Marx thought that the first nation to have a communist revolution would be the United States of America. Because in Marx's lifetime, particularly by the war between the states, uh, the U.S. had the biggest, most dynamic, most developed capitalist economy. And around 1870, fueled by the war between the states, uh, the U.S. overtook Uh, the the British Empire overtook the United Kingdom as the world's greatest single economy. And Marx absolutely idolized Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was his greatest political hero. Uh, Marx wrote a fan letter to Lincoln. Marx saw Lincoln as the great liberator of not just the slave but of also the downtrodden Yankee uh, industrial working class who no longer had to compete against free labor in Dixie. So but Marx wanted, he agitated for revolution right now. And it's so amusing, I don't know if that's the right word, ironic, that's probably a better word for it, that not one single industrialized capitalist nation has ever had a Marxist-style communist revolution. Uh, if So dialectical materialism has, has not panned out at all. The first successful communist revolution, successful in the sense of Overthrowing uh, the the previous order and establishing a communist government was, of course, in Tsarist Russia. But the irony of that is Tsarist Russia was not remotely an uh, an advanced industrialized capitalist nation. I mean, first of all, it was a it was still a feudalistic society. The czars. Legally owned all Russian land, the Czars were still in effect worshipped as religious icons by the uh, the mass of, of Russian peasants. Uh, Russia was overwhelmingly uh, a, uh, a a primitive uh, feudalistic society uh, and and because the Czars owned all property. Even theft was treason, theft was stealing from the czars. So, uh, czarist Russia was was certainly not a, a, a capitalist industrialized order. And uh, neither uh, were any of the Eastern European nations and Central European nations that were taken over by Joseph Stalin and the Red Army at the end of World War II. I mean, these were uh, very poor agricultural nations Uh, economically backward, industrially undeveloped, and they didn't, not one of them had an authentic revolution. They had revolutions imposed upon them by the Red Army. And so this would include uh, East Germany, Romania, Poland, Bulgaria, uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, uh, and then Albania uh, would have a communist government. Well, Albania was a primitive uh, non-industrial society as well. Uh, If we look at uh, North Korea, we gave the Russians, naively, North Korea at the end of World War II. Well, North Korea was a primitive uh, pre-industrial society economically. Uh, And then, of course, uh, China. Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai and Judah and uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, they did not... Uh, have a successful communist revolution in anything remotely approaching an advanced industrialized capitalist uh, China. The China of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek uh, was quite backward economically. Uh, ditto regarding the uh, pre-communist society that Ho Chi Minh uh, was able to lead a successful communist revolt in in Vietnam. Ditto regarding uh, Pol Pot's a pre-communist uh, uh, Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, the the Cambodian communists, they overthrew a peasant society. Ditto regarding uh, the communist revolution in Laos. Uh, if you look at the communist revolution in Cuba, uh, the communist revolution in Cuba uh, was had not reached the uh, advanced uh, industrial capitalist stage uh, that Marx uh, said that you know you had to see. In a society before it would be ripe for a, an authentic communist revolution, uh, so again, 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 you know, if you look at Colonel Mengistu's uh, Ethiopia in, in 1975 in in, Af- in East Africa when Mengistu and his communist disciples overthrew, uh, you know, his uh, Majesty Emperor Haile Selassie, the second. Um, so n- there has never been a single communist revolution that followed the script of Marx's dialectical materialism. But the reality was, Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky and Mao and all the rest of Marx's disciples, they were consistent with Marx in that, like Marx, they agitated for revolution in their lifetime too. Um, So you've got sort of two parallel tracks here. In theory, the communist theoreticians, they hold that, oh yes, Marx is right with dialectical materialism. But we need to speed things up. We need to, if we get the opportunity, if we get the chance to have a bona fide uh, communist revolution right now, let's do it. Let's speed up history. And keep in mind, Marx and all these communists are atheists. They don't believe in a god or an afterlife. They believe this life is it. They believe that the only heaven we can ever create is what we can create on this earth. And this life is our only life. So why, wait, let's, let's have the revolution right here right now, and look at all this terrible injustice right here right now. We, if we can skip a few stages uh, in dialect, dialectical materialism, all the better. We can uh, revolutionize for the better by light years, and all the sooner the quality of life for the masses of people. So uh, Marx believed in theory intellectually that <coughs> societies, excuse me, had to undergo. This set predetermined set of stages, uh, but in reality, uh, communists have always pushed for revolution right now, um, and they would use whatever tactics would succeed. Lenin was quite frank when he said, look, we are going to cheat, we're going to lie, we're going to murder, we're going to use terror, whatever it takes to achieve a revolution you know, right here, uh, right now. Uh, the, the Bolshevik Party, the Communist Party of Russia, even had an official terror brigade, and it assassinated people. Uh, Joseph Stalin was a bank robber uh, and uh, a blackmailer. He, you know, he would uh, go to businesses, oil companies, and he would say, donate money to our party, and we'll, we'll burn down your, your oil refinery. Um, and you know, truth, as Dennis Prager says, is not a left-wing value. Uh, if truth can serve the revolutionary cause, Great, but if, if lying serves it, lie. Um, you know, these are Nietzscheans. They believe that the communist leaders are the ultimate elites, and they can be their own gods and create their own order, their own rules. Um, the very term politically correct is a Soviet Communist Party term. to just In the 1930s, to justify, to rationalize, uh, when the Communist Party of Russia had to deviate from Marxist-Leninist writings or teachings or dogma or theory. Uh, well, uh, we're deviating from official Marxist uh, uh, teachings, but it's politically correct. The party needs to do this for the, the sake of the revolution. It's okay. Um, so, uh, Ultimately, again, we come back to, to rage. This, this outrage that there is massive injustice and we've got the means to, to change it right here, right now, if we will only seize our opportunities.
1: So was there a racial element to Karl Marx and his theories?
2: Absolutely. Karl Marx, and this is a great irony, because... After World War II, when the three fourths of the world's present countries were still colonized by overwhelmingly white Judeo-Christian capitalist European Western European societies, especially of course the British and the French, the the Dutch, the Belgians, um, but also we, there were American colonies as well. Well. After World War II, most of the world's peoples who are colored, who uh, are certainly in the 1940s, 50s, were much poorer than European Eurocentric societies like Western Europe and and, uh, the U.S. Uh, Most third world peoples in Latin America, uh, Africa, Middle East, Asia, they wanted independence. And the bulk of the uh, independence movement, revolutionary, anti-colonial leaders, were communist, or at a minimum, socialist, but they were all influenced very significantly by the writings of Marx and Engels. And they, like Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, uh, even the African National Congress in South Africa, all over uh, the Third World, they linked colonialism and all the racism and racial oppression that did come about, thanks to that white colonialism, they linked that with capitalism. So in their minds, white racism against colored people uh, was inextricably linked to capitalism. And they saw Marxism as not just A a theory of economic liberation from economic exploitation, but I think they also saw it as the ideal theory for non-Caucasian people, for black and brown and yellow and red people, you know, all God's children who are not white. They saw communism as the ideal uh, political economic engine to also overthrow the whole evil structure of racism. They saw capitalism and racism as inextricably linked, okay, fitting together like a hand in a glove. What is so ironic about that is that the founding father of this supposed liberation theory or, or revolutionary doctrine, communism or Marxism, the irony of that is that Karl Marx was a virulent racist he was extremely bigoted, Uh, and even by the standards, even by the backward racist standards of the mid-late 19th century. Uh, And it's all the more appalling, I think, uh, when you consider that Marx was one of the most educated people in the world. I mean, he was one of the first PhDs, he was extraordinarily well-read, he was Uh, uh, He considered himself a a very erudite, scholarly, uh, intellectual, and and there's no doubt that that he was. Um, But Marx was completely bigoted. Uh, He totally dismissed all rural people as, quote, rural idiocy, end quote. Uh, Marx uh, had real disdain for East Europeans. Uh, He really uh, dismissed the Poles. He completely denigrated uh, Spanish as degenerates. Uh, He completely uh, uh, dismissed Mexicans as Spanish degenerates. Uh, Marx, I'm sorry to say, uh, referred to black people uh, as the n-word. Uh, Marx uh, was also uh, uh, the ultimate poster boy, I believe, for the self-hating Jew. Uh, Marx uh, referred to uh, people as a quote uh, a inward Jew." Uh, he referred to someone as quote a dirty Jew." End quote. Uh, and I'll read you. From Marx's own writings uh, about his own uh, ethnic and religious group. Uh, Marx wrote that, uh, quote, what is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering. What is his god? Money. Marx actually wrote that uh, communism, uh, quote, would make the Jew impossible, end quote. In Marx's own uh, essay on the Jewish question uh, published in 1844. Marx wrote, quote, Money is the jealous God of Israel, uh, in face of which uh, no other God may exist. The social emancipation of the Jew, uh, 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 l- let me redo that. The social emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of society from Judaism. And Marx further wrote that, quote, racial trash, end quote, would uh, have to uh, perish in a, quote, revolutionary holocaust. Now, all of that that I've just shared with you would fit in very well in the pages of uh, Der Sturmer in Nazi Germany. That could all have easily been written by... Uh, Hitler's propaganda minister Josef Goebbels in Der Sturmer or any other uh, virulently anti-Semitic and and racist uh, Nazi publication so uh, Marx was completely racist and I so wish that uh, Marxist revolutionaries in the third world who were uh, virtually all non-white, I wish they had known about just how unashamedly uh completely racist and and bigoted and ethnically prejudiced uh, and religiously uh, bigoted uh, karl marx really was i mean marx was he was an intellectual version of an archie bonker quite frankly but with a much uh stronger meme streak i mean marx i mean i don't know that you can get a whole lot more graphic than calling people racial trash needing to perish in a revolutionary holocaust. Um, so Marx was, was his racism and his complete intolerance and, and wanting to eliminate entire peoples was quite quite explicit.
1: So in this age of cancel culture mm-hmm. uh, one would think Karl Marx, there are statues of him right around the world isn't he ripe? For cancellation,
2: why has he gotten a pass? Because he's the founding father of modern leftism. Modern leftism was was birthed, its genesis was in the French Revolution with Le Jacobin, led by Maximilian Robespierre. Um, the In fact, the, the very term left-wing and the term right-wing originated with the French Revolution when in the, the Revolutionary Parliament and the General Assembly you had the the less radical revolutionaries, uh, le Girondin, sitting on the right side, and then the more radical revolutionaries wanting more rapid, massive change right now, they were le Jacobins on the left. And of course, le Jacobins would ultimately prevail by 1793, and they would give us le Terror, and then by the spring of 1794, le grand Terror. Uh, And we would see massive violence. Well, uh, Marx considered the French Revolution a noble failure. And uh, so did Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky. They even named some of the big uh, original Soviet communist uh, battleships after uh, uh, the revolutionaries of the French Revolution. Uh, The Danton, uh, the Marat. Um, Now, So, uh, Marx uh, believed that you have a certain elite group of educated, enlightened people who should run everything. And this has been a core leftist belief ever since. And truth is not an absolute... Remember, in leftism, there is no God, there are no Ten Commandments, there is no... Christ's golden rule of doing to others as you would have them doing to you. And so we make, the elites make up the rules. And it would not do at all if the founding father of modern leftism, Karl Marx, is shown up to be a pretty virulent racist. Um, so that part of the record is simply covered up. I mean, I'm reminded of how if you go to uh, when I travel to China, and I've been blessed to travel there a few times. I've been very blessed to travel all over that wonderful country. Well, China today, it certainly it, it has a communist government, and the communist part of China has a legal monopoly on all political power. But China is no longer, thank God, a totalitarian, traditional Marxist-Leninist communist dictatorship. It is a communist dictatorship, but... It's a communist dictatorship with an enormous amount of capitalism, which has given the Chinese people a record amount of prosperity. So uh, in China, you still have uh, Chairman Mao, the founding father of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the leader of the Chinese Communist Revolution, the first dictator of China from October 1st, 1949, until his death in early September of 1976. Uh, And he, his image alone is still on the front of every single uh, communist uh, bill. You know, all the Yuan of every denomination has Chairman Mao's image on the front, and you go to Tiananmen Square, which is the holiest of holy sites in China, uh, where you, that's where you have the Mausoleum, as they call it, where Chairman Mao's body is on display, and that's where the massive portrait of Chairman Mao hangs uh, in, in front of Tiananmen Gate overlooking Tiananmen Square. So Chairman Mao is still genuflected before me. He's the great. He's the George Washington of China, and that's how he saw himself. Uh, And he he idolized Washington, Um, but you know he adds legitimacy to the regime in terms of the regime can say we are the descendants of Chairman Mao, the present Chinese leader since 2012, President Xi Jinping. His father was one of the original cadres, one of the first generation of communist ruling class rulers in China. Um, but economically, clearly, they have almost completely betrayed Chairman Mao economically because Mao, man, I mean, he he imposed a, a North Korean-style uh, total government control of the economy economic regime. I mean, North Korea's regime was modeled really after Mao's. Um, so, uh, but the fact that uh, the, you know, his image, Mao's image is everywhere, that adds legitimacy to the communist aspect of the Communist Party rule in China. Uh, well, the Chinese government, in recent decades, ever since Deng Xiaoping took power in the late 70s, and Deng had, had of course, been purged by Mao during the Cultural Revolution from nineteen seventy six to uh, 1966 to 76, uh, the official party line in China for decades has been that, well, Chairman Mao was great, but when he got old, he got a little confused, and he made some mistakes in the Cultural Revolution, and there were some some errors in judgment. But that's it. I mean, most of Chairman Mao's rule is still seen as just you know almost godly. Uh, you can't be really honest about the full Mao, or you'll lose your job, or you'll be thrown in jail. Uh, so uh the same is true regarding marx um marx the, the the less pleasant the the really vile sides of marx are conveniently ignored because that just wouldn't do i mean uh it's just like leftists in cancel culture today in america they get a pass because to go after them would be to undercut the legitimacy of leftism uh, of communism of marxism and so uh And the irony is, even though Marxism, perhaps the most famous quote from Marx is, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, Marxism or communism is the ultimate egalitarian philosophy. But as George Orwell wrote in his critique of communism, or one of his critiques of communism, the the fable uh, uh, Animal Farm in 1945, Well, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than
1: others. (laughs) So why is Marxism so attractive to intellectuals or so-called
2: intellectuals? Because I think it reads so well and it feels so good. Um, I think that so many—and it's—for all of its sins, Marxism, which is really synonymous with communism— Marxism idolizes the intellectual class. And I remember reading, and I wish I could remember who to give credit to, but a long time ago I read, someone wrote that even in oppressive communist societies where intellectuals are thrown in prison for uh, speaking out against some policy of the ruling communist regime, intellectuals feel important. In communist societies because communist governments really do revere intellectuals and if you're an intellectual in a communist nation who criticizes the communist government and you lose your job or uh, you you're demoted at the university or you don't get a promotion or you're even thrown in jail or you're thrown in internal exile you're put under house arrest like say uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was in Russia or uh, uh, Andrei uh, uh, Sakharov, Marxist intellectuals will still feel like they're important, they're significant. It really bugs the heck out of a lot of American intellectuals, particularly the leftists, the communists, the Marxists on faculties, that basketball players, football players, uh, baseball players, rock stars, movie stars, TV stars, entertainers, are light years more famous and feared politically, their endorsements, their views politically, who they endorse for public office, are are taken light years more seriously than the views of some obscure Marxist or frankly any other kind of professor in this country. That bugs the heck out of intellectuals. Intellectuals, I mean, I think of so many professors as representing sort of revenge of the nerds. I mean, let's face it. Most of us who were professors, I was a professor for 33 and a half years. Most of us who were professors, we were the smart kids in class, or at least we thought we were smart smart in terms of we knew how to get good grades. Uh, A lot of us have no common sense and, and don't know how to come in out of a shower of rain, but we're grade savvy, right? We're intellectually smart. Uh, and I think it's true, the old adage, that in college, the B students will end up working for the C students, and the A students will teach. Most of our politicians were not A students. So many of them, anyway, I mean, they were, uh, and, and so many weren't even C students. I mean, gosh, you look at uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a C student, uh, and you look at, uh, uh, gosh, um, uh, Dan quayle i don't think released his grades i don't think Barack Obama released his grades uh, when George Bush the uh, second spoke gave the commencement address, I think at Southern Methodist University. He closed his commencement address by saying, uh, to those of you who are graduating with honors, uh, you know I, I offer you my great congratulations and uh, to the C students, uh, uh, let me just remind you, you too can become president." <laughs> Um, So, let's face it, um, so many professors are are quite arrogant elitists. They believe that they're the smartest people, and they really should run society. And it bugs the heck out of them that they don't, and that they're really ignored, that they're irrelevant. Um, Also, think about it, professors, by definition, are dictators over their little fiefdom the power differential between the professor and his students is absolute. It's total. The professor has complete control of that classroom. And he may, particularly if he's on the left, say, oh, call, don't call me Dr. Young, I'm Doug. Um, and you know he may not probably if he's a leftist today, he won't wear a suit and a tie. You know, he he may wear flip-flops and and you know uh, short pants to class. But absolutely, he's the king of his classroom and the king of his office. And the way tenure works, unless he really uh, gets out of line, he's got lifetime employment. And it's very easy to intellectually and even physically isolate yourself as a professor in that campus ivory tower where you're kind of a big fish in a little pond on campus you got a lot of students who may idolize you. You may see yourself, as, like Marx did, as a, an evangelist for revolution. You're using your lectern as a soapbox for agitprop lectures. You're wanting to lead the revolution to inspire these young, naive, idealistic uh, folks to, to lead the revolution. You can be sort of like Marx, like a philosophical founding father of it. And you see society as uh, being terribly unequal. And the smart people like you, or as you think of yourself as being anyway um, you 're missing out you 're not doing all that great financially you 're probably comfortable but but you ought to know a lot you ought to enjoy a lot more prosperity. Marx and Marxists believe that freedom is the enemy, that people will abuse their freedom to create inequality and not make the, the right choices um, and so every communist government has been not just a government that controlled the economy, but it wanted total control over every aspect of people's lives. It turned, transformed the schools into indoctrination centers where children would, would be brainwashed into being good communists. Vladimir Lenin was quite clear, let me educate the children for four years and the seeds I have sown will never be uprooted. And so, and communists also want, because they're totalitarians, in every communist government, every Marxist-Leninist regime has taken over all the news media, has outlawed all freedoms of speech and press and assembly, um, you know, all the means, all possible means of expression or communication or any other means with which any opposition could have any hope to stage a, rev- a counter-revolution against the communists uh, have been eliminated. Um, so. Marx was all about control. He wanted an elite, credentialed, well-educated, he believed cultured, erudite class of people to be at the top of the pyramid. And he wanted the mass of people to be equal, but he really wanted this elite ruling class uh, to run the show, which is how every communist society has operated. Uh, And quite frankly, that's the way a lot of univers—I I mean, universities operate. You've got an elite class of people running the show. Uh, so I think it's uh, not the least bit coincidental that so many university intellectual professors still idolize Marx. Um, I'll never forget one professor told me, uh, and he was a journalism professor. Uh, he said, oh, and then I read Marx and it just opened up a whole new world for me. Um, A former student of mine who went on to graduate school uh, uh, in political science at a major university, uh, I'll never forget, he told me that uh, when he read Marx, he realized Marx is just the bomb. And think about it. I mean, Marx, I think, reads a lot better uh, on the paper than Marxism is lived in practice, Mm. Um, It has a lot of appeal to people who lead and man the barricades of social justice movements. You've got, and there are a lot of similarities between Marxism or communism and Judeo-Christianity. In that, think about it, they both have a holy book, either the Bible or Das Kapital. Um, They both have a clear good versus evil mindset. There's a real clear conflict between good and evil. Uh, They both have a sacred or good class, the Jews or the Christians or believers or the proletariat. Uh, They both have uh, an evil class, you know, the unbelievers, the oppressors, the bourgeoisie. Um, They they both uh, really bash the haves. Uh, They both really uh, want to improve the lives of the poor. Uh, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Um, And, you know, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Um, Marx and communists want to destroy the the, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie. And the communists, and, and also think about it, both Jews and Christians, as well as communists, they have a, a pantheon of saints, of martyrs. You go to any uh, communist country and you'll see demonstrations and there'll be posters of you know, Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky and, and Mao, uh, Che Guevara, etc., etc. Well, we have saints in, in Catholic uh, churches uh, and you know, apostles uh, in, in uh, Catholic and Protestant Christian churches. Um, both Uh, believers both Jews and Christians as well as Marxists have arguably a pretty similar vision of heaven Uh, it's just that the Marxists want to create a heaven on earth right here right now but really I think the basic vision or structure of heaven for both is the same Uh, I think that Jews and Christians believe that heaven is a place where everybody is equal I don't think Jews and Christians believe that there is a government in heaven. I mean, God rules, but we don't, there's no governmental structure. You know, you have a withering away of the state. You have a classless, stateless utopia, do you not? I mean, I don't think those of us who are Christian or Jewish believe that in heaven you've got uh, a ruling class of bourgeois, more senior, older angels who are taking advantage, who are exploiting junior new arrivals. I don't think it's like in uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life where Clarence has to earn his wings. I mean, no, we're all equal. And that's, that's the communist, that's the final stage of, of dialectical materialism. That's communism, a stateless, classless utopia. Um, I remember, God rest her soul, my wonderful uh, grandmother Young, uh, when she was old, and uh, we went to uh, Granddaddy's uh, graveyard, uh, the graveyard where he, uh, his body is buried. And, uh, and I hope this wasn't a sin, but I uh, asked her, I, I wanted to get a, you know, find out what her reaction would be. I said, now, Grandmama, you know, now I'm reading about there are some graveyards where uh, uh, when black folks are, are starting to get buried in the same graveyard as the white folks, some of the white folks... Uh, families are digging up their their relatives' graves and and moving them to another cemetery. What do you think about that, Grandma? And Grandma, I'll never forget, God rest her sweet soul, she said, well, we're going to all be together in heaven. Now, Hmm. to this fine Christian lady's in, in her mindset, in her world, she was born in rural South Carolina in the year of our Lord, 1908. She grew up and lived most of her life in a completely racially segregated, racist Jim Crow society. And the color line was the class line in her world growing up. Well, God bless her. She, in her vision of heaven, no. Color doesn't matter. And so I do think there are a lot of ironic similarities between Judeo-Christianity and Communism, at least in that final stage and even before then. But there are massive differences, of course. Jews and Christians are restrained by the Ten Commandments and Christians also by uh, Christ's golden rule. Marxist Communists are not. And I find it a great irony that so many secular people stereotype the Judeo-Christian God as a really harsh, constipated, judgmental God. But it strikes me that for all the judgment in the Bible, there's so much forgiveness. And I don't see any in the communist world of present-day cancel culture. I mean, let's face it, if we review the Bible, just a real brief Cliff Notes thumbnail review, God gives one commandment to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat any forbidden fruit. Well, what's the one thing they do? They eat. That's one of the first things they do. They eat the fruit of the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, yes, God does cast them out of the Garden of Eden, but he still loved them. Hey, Adam still lived to be 930. And golly, look at who did God choose to save humanity from the flood, but Noah, who got drunk. And then, wow, who does God choose to lead the Jews out of Egypt into the promised land to liberate them from the evil Pharaoh, but Moses, a murderer. And wow, who does God choose to be king of the Jews? David an adulterer who ordered the husband of his paramour, of his mistress, to the front line, to the point of the spear, knowing he was likely going to be killed in battle as he was. But yet God still loved him, still let him be king of the Jews. Look at, look at the disciples, the 12 uh, disciples of Christ. Uh, all 12, when Christ is arrested and crucified, the, the, all 12, they ran away in fear and Christ's favorite, Peter himself, denied Christ not once, not twice, but thrice, knowing Christ. Hmm. So it strikes me, yet God still loved all of them and forgave all of them. So it strikes me that the God of the Bible is remarkably forgiving. You know, on the cross, you know, in Calvary, one of the the two uh, crooks who was crucified on either side of Christ, you know, uh, was talking to Christ, and Christ said, you know, you will see uh, see me in heaven. You will be in paradise. You know, Christ forgave his sins. Now, I have yet to find any forgiveness in communist societies. I mean, in secular societies, there no forgiveness, and context doesn't count for anything. I mean, let's not forget the same Marxist revolutionaries who tore down all these Confederate statues in recent years, they didn't just tear down Confederate statues. They tore down statues of Christopher Columbus, statues of Father Junipera Serra, uh, statues of Abraham Lincoln, uh, General, uh, George Washington, General U- and President Ulysses Grant, President Teddy Roosevelt, even Frederick Douglass, (laughs) who I would nominate for the title of the most inspiring, quintessential uh, American success story of all time. A man born in slavery who beat up the slave breaker who then escaped from slavery, became the, I believe, the greatest abolitionist leader of all, a phenomenal public speaker, speaking not just here but in Britain, who would be uh, important in the Underground Railroad, helping to free brother and sister slaves from bondage, who would be the first great black civil rights leader, uh, great advocate of labor unions, of women's rights, First black newspaper editor, uh, minister, to, uh, ambassador in Haiti, I mean, Abraham, I mean, the uh, first black man invited to the White House, yes, to President Lincoln, first black presidential advisor of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, Frederick Douglass, I mean, he is the, the ultimate poster boy for the ideal self-made great American man. Um, but yet he, he's a target too. So context counts for nothing. If you've ever done anything that doesn't fit the diktats of you know, present day uh, political correctness, you must be destroyed. Um, but of course, there are exceptions. People like Marx and Mao, Lenin, you have to ignore them. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev, for example, went to his credit when from March of 1985 until he, when he was overthrown in August of eighty of uh, ninety one, during his six and a half year run as the leader of Russia, and to his enormous credit, he did free a record number of political prisoners. He did uh, stop the censorship of so many books. Uh, he did institute a number of capitalist reforms, but he never went after Vladimir Lenin. He only went after Stalin. He could not go after the founding father of the Russian Bolshevik Party because that would so undercut the legitimacy of the whole regime which is why the communist rulers in China will never criticize Mao beyond the Cultural Revolution um, so and, and of course we now know we've only learned in recent years that Mikhail Gorbachev it, it's interesting before I uh, mention this little tidbit of history let me let me preface it with this President Reagan When he would meet with Gorbachev, it struck him that Gorbachev would mention God in some of their discussions. And afterwards, when Reagan would talk with some of his advisors, he would tell them, he would exclaim, you know, I really, I I can't help but think that this this man is a believer. I mean, he's the... you know, he keeps mentioning God. I don't understand. Wow. Well, we now know. It came out just a few years ago. Mikhail Gorbachev was a closet Christian. Yes. His grandmother was a devout. I can't remember. Forgive me. I can't remember if his mother or grandmother, I think maybe his mother, was a devout Christian. And even after the communists took over, I mean, his but this mother and grandmother, who was very important to him, still was a devout believer and worshipped privately, secretly in the home. And Gorbachev was a quiet Christian. And buddy does it, brother does it not really explain a lot about his rule.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: The one uh, significant communist ruler in history who did free large numbers of people was secretly a Christian. Now, he could not dare mention that in public. That, uh, that would completely undercut his communist legitimacy. But it, it really uh, now makes so much of what had heretofore been inexplicable about his rule now explicable.
1: Hmm. Well, these last few questions are somewhat opinion-oriented. Okay. Karl Marx said the philosophers have only interpreted the world in different Mm -hmm. ways. The point is to change it. Yes. How do you think Marxism has changed the
2: world? Oh, my goodness. I used to tell my classes, uh, as I would start my lectures on Marxism, you cannot hope to have any remote understanding of the 20th century on planet Earth if you don't understand communism. I mean, you simply cannot. The the fact is that Marxism or communism would really capture uh, so much of the intellectual class of the Western world, spanning from London to Moscow. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, communism became not just acceptable, but even popular with the educated elites long before uh, it became more and more popular with the political elites and then the middle and and, a few working class people. Um, And with the rise and dominance, of Germany in uh, intellectual circles, in terms of academia specifically. In the uh, mid to late 19th century, American universities didn't even offer PhDs. And so we imported, starting in the latter half of the 19th century, we in America, our elite universities started importing all these German elite professors who were overwhelmingly Marxist or socialist, influenced by Marx to create our PhD programs here. And so higher education in America, the all as it as was the case all over the Western world in Western Europe, became dominated by the German Marxist or Marxist influence scholars from the late 19th century on. And uh, so with the rise of the Communist Bolshevik Party, in Russia, led by the intellectual leaders of Lenin and Leon Trotsky, uh, when the Bolshevik Party took over, oh my gosh, that when it took over Russia, the Russian Empire, that revolutionized the whole world. Because, and here's another similarity between communists and uh, Christians: like Christianity, communism is a uh, a faith that believes we have to save everyone else from himself. We have to spread the faith. We need to be evangelists. We need to spread the gospel of Christ or Marx, communism, to the rest of the world. And so, just like uh, Daniel Ortega, the top communist dictator in Nicaragua, said we want a, the Sanitista communist in Nicaragua said, we want a revolution without borders. And so, from the get-go, the communists in Russia wanted to export revolution. Um, and you, you had a war between uh, Leninist Russia and uh, Poland uh, in 1920. Um, and, uh, of course, Stalin uh, would export revolution uh, to Eastern and Central Europe in 19, late 44, early 1945. Well, and not to get ahead of the game, but going back to Lenin in uh, October, according to the Western calendar, in November, early November of 1917, uh, the communists would take over Russia. That would—I mean—that was the biggest country in the world, and the Russians would create a, uh, a massive totalitarian communist Marxist Leninist government uh, that would become the role model. It would establish the structure for every single subsequent communist government that's ever existed, and my goodness, uh, it would. Uh, create a totalitarian tyranny Uh, it would uh, create this tyranny would spread from Russia through Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, East Germany and then thanks to Soviet influence uh, North Korea there wouldn't have been a, a NATO alliance or a Warsaw Pact alliance and a Cold War from 1945 to 1990 had it not been for communism And we and the Russians wanted to take over Western Europe. We became much more internationalist after World War II, unlike World War I. And we now had a permanent military presence. We never um, downsized our military remotely to the extent that we had after every previous American war. We now created the the modern uh, permanent military industrial complex in this country, the national security state with the CIA and about 16 other intelligence I can't remember if we, have, if we have 13 or 17. It's somewhere in the teens, the number of intelligence agencies we have. Um, we would get so involved in overthrowing governments around the world to try to prevent communism from from uh, ruling uh, throughout the third world. Russia would, when, when the Russian communists realized that they were not going to be able to take over uh, Western Europe in all likelihood, they, wanted to, they spread their tentacles throughout the third world uh, and captured a lot of revolutionary uh, anti-colonial movements in the post-war era. Uh, my goodness, there would not have been a Korean War had it not been for uh, Kim Il-sung, the Russian-imposed dictator of North Korea, who, was ba- who got backing, uh, for the backing of uh, Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union, and Chairman Mao in China before he, on June twenty-fourth, 1950, invaded South Korea. There wouldn't have been a communist revolution in Vietnam, uh, led by Ho Chi Minh. There wouldn't have been the Vietnam War. If not for communism, you wouldn't have had the rise of the communist revolutions uh, of uh, the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot in Cambodia in 75 and in 76 in in Laos with the Patent Lao. We wouldn't have had the communist revolution in Cuba uh, with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and Raul Castro. And hey, Cuba immediately, uh, once on January 1st, when Fidel Castro and Raul and, and Che took over in Havana, Almost from the get go, they sent revolutionaries all over Latin America to foment revolution. You know that's that's why it's not a coincidence that uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion. While yes, that was an American-controlled operation, but the training camp or camps for those uh, uh, for the the Cubans who who, uh, fought in Cuba against the Castro regime. The training camps were in Guatemala. I mean, anti-communists all over Latin America felt threatened by the communists uh, in Cuba. Che Guevara was killed trying to lead a revolution in Bolivia, Hmm. pretty long ways away from uh, Cuba. Castro uh, and Che Guevara sent uh, Cuban uh, revolutionaries to Africa. Before he was killed uh, fighting for communist revolution in Bolivia, Che Guevara was leading revolutionaries in the Congo, which would later be Zaire before it would go back to being the Congo um, and Fidel Castro in the '70s would send Cuban troops to uh, uh, help Cuban revolution excuse me uh, communist revolutionaries in Africa and we would have a tragically successful communist revolution led by Colonel Mengistu overthrowing his majesty Emperor Haile Selassie II in Ethiopia in 1975, and we would have you know, the horrific uh, communist-caused famine there. So, my goodness, communism would take over a record number of countries, would lead to a record number of wars... Uh, inspired by communists wanting to spread the gospel of Marx all over the world, also communist governments learned right away that communist economics don't work and they can't compete with you know neighboring capitalist countries, and they feared uh, capitalist countries uh, you know, economically. They feared their their people were were fleeing to capitalist countries. You know there was an enormous brain drain. There was a tremendous brain drain. Uh, from East Germany to West Germany. I mean, that's the reason for uh, the Berlin Wall put up in uh, early August of 1961 to prevent the best and brightest of the East Germans from uh, fleeing uh, from communist uh, East Berlin to non-communist West Berlin, which was a a free, democratic, prosperous uh, island of liberty in a sea of East German communist slavery. Uh, The Vietnam War, which would kill 58,000 Americans and probably over a million Vietnamese, I don't think would have uh, come about but for communism. It was the communist North Vietnamese government, aided by the Viet Cong or or Viet Minh uh, communist guerrillas in South Vietnam, who were the aggressor uh, in that war, or aggressors in that war. we lost, and, and to backtrack a little bit about Korea, we lost uh, 37, 38,000 uh, soldiers uh, in the Korean War. Um, my goodness, you look at all of, of as I mentioned before, all the uh, American involvement in uh, conflagrations all over the third world, uh, CIA coups, et cetera, et cetera, in this Cold War with Russia. Um, and then even beyond uh, the, the Cold War, my goodness, we still have a communist dictatorship in China, uh, in Cuba, uh, now once again in Nicaragua, uh, to a great extent in Venezuela. Um, and, um, but even way beyond uh, communist governments, gosh, uh, communism has had an enormous impact on the non-communist world regarding the non-Communist world's internal dynamics. Um, For example, I think you can make a credible case that if Marxism did any good, it was to so frighten the bourgeois ruling class uh, of the Western European nations and America and Canada uh, in Australia, and New Zealand, in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries to dramatically speed up the pace of reforms. Uh, I think it was largely out of fear of some kind of a communist revolution that uh, we in the Western world, the capitalists, uh, during the Victorian age, uh, from the mid-19th to the early 20th centuries, uh, we would... Uh, permit labor unions, we would allow them collective bargaining rights, uh, we would uh, start to regulate uh, businesses, particularly factories, much more uh, we would have uh, maximum uh, we'd have laws passed uh, limiting the number of hours someone could work in a day um, we would eliminate backbreaking physical labor for women and children, we would have child labor laws We also developed uh, free public schools, uh, mass-based democracy for the poor, not just for poor men, but poor women as well. Um, We really did see a number of economic and political, educational, uh, and social reforms that I think came about, certainly influenced or speeded up by the threat of communism. We were able to forestall or prevent a communist revolution because of all these tremendous, wonderful uh, reforms. But still today, I think far more negatively, uh, we see the enormous impact of communism uh, around the world. I mean, with uh, cries of uh, how uh, we have uh, way too much economic exploitation and um, my goodness, uh, the, the social justice movements are all heavily influenced by Marxism. Uh, class envy, bashing the rich, bashing the has. I mean, that's right out of the communist playbook. Uh, the very discipline of sociology is rooted in Marxism. Um, victimology, group identity, politics. Um, Marxism does not see people as individuals. That's a distinctly Judeo-Christian, and really, uh, that's a, a Jewish um mindset that that was that the Jews, to their enormous credit, created before, you know, it's funny, people say, oh, that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mindset, that's terrible. That was a magnificent advance in history. Thank God the Jews came up with that, because before uh, this Jewish concept of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, then in ancient times, if anybody from your tribe did anything bad to anybody from my tribe, the notion was your whole tribe has got to be punished for that. There was no concept of individuality. You were but your father's son. You were but a member of your village or your tribe. right? And so my tribe would maybe try to wipe out your whole clan. But thank God with the Old Testament, the early Jews said No. If Paul did something bad to my tribe or my family, Paul has to answer for that. Only, And if Paul is found guilty, only Paul will be punished for that. Not Paul's wife or son or daughter or anybody else in Paul's life. Well, that's an, an enormous advance forward for humanity. Hmm. Well, communists fundamentally reject that. Communists say, no, the individual is nothing. You are either a member of a good group or a bad group. You're either on the, the side of righteousness, social justice, you're a member of the proletariat or you're a peasant, or you're an evil bourgeois factory owner or an e- evil uh, monarchist or an evil kulak, a rich farmer. Um, and what has happened in the last several decades in American history is that in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, American Marxists have realized that, you know, The class conflict aspect of Marxism, which is really the heart of it, never really caught on in capitalist societies because uh, most Americans, by global standards, are doing pretty doggone well. I mean, we're the richest people in history. And gosh, um, our poor live like kings compared to most of the rest of the world. And the working class, and here's another great irony of Marxism, the working class has never embraced Marxism. Uh, the working class has historically been way too religious. And I think that's another reason why Marx hated religion so. Mm. Uh, I think he saw religion, well, he called it the opiate of the masses, and he said that man is God. He believed that religion was the ultimate brainwashing tool of the bourgeois ruling class uh, to, as Napoleon put it, you know, Napoleon said, religion is great stuff for keeping common people quiet. Religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. Well, Marx absolutely believed that. Uh, But, In modern America, American Marxists have substituted race for class, and so now you have, and this really ties back into cancel culture. Certain, you know, uh, you know, this, you know, uh, the white race is evil, non-white races are good. Uh, Men are evil, Uh, women good. Um, You've got straights bad. Gay is good. I mean, the, the Marxist mi- mindset is a simplistic w- world of black and white, good and evil, no variations of gray, and and so uh, and this also helps explain to go back to an earlier question why people like Mao and Marx uh, and Lenin are never called out on their sins by you know the true believers. Um, so uh, so much of our politics today are enormously colored by Marxism. Group identity politics, social justice movements, cancel culture, canceling somebody from the public sphere for something that he or she is alleged to have said or done 10, 20 years ago. Context means nothing, that's irrelevant. Um, So it's a really, it's a merciless mindset. Again, it has no restraints. Jefferson and Madison and our founding fathers were the greatest comparative political scholars of all time, I believe, and they knew that like the, as the Bible taught them, and, and they were all regular readers of the Bible, they were almost all devout Christians, even someone who was not a devout Christian like Jefferson still read the Bible regularly and was culturally certainly a Christian, and he said, I am a real Christian, that is to say a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. Jefferson and Madison and company believed that man, the Bible is right, man is inherently evil. And this is another rejection of Marxism. Marxism believes that man is inherently good and society terribly corrupts him. Rousseau believed that man was good, but modern society corrupts him. And Marxism believes that it's this capitalist system, in particular, especially the bourgeois uh, industrial stage of it, that so distorts man, that so perverts man into something evil, certainly the bourgeoisie. But With communism, we can have an idyllic, heaven-on-earth, stateless, classless utopia. Well, the Bible teaches us, and our founding fathers believed that, no, the Bible is right. Man is inherently evil. Man is sinful. And we are not perfectible. And we have to obey these Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. And so our government, the U.S., is set up by the founding fathers to have lots of Double, triple, quadruple checks, monkey wrenches thrown into the system, checks and balances, different branches of government, so that no one branch of government can ever get too big for its britches, can ever get too powerful. Everybody is constantly watching everybody else and is jealously guarding his own power. You don't want anybody in charge. Well, that completely contradicts Marxism. Marxism says, no, we don't want any restraints. We don't want any uh, breaks put on Mm. righteousness. Um, the Marxists want an elite group of intellectuals to dominate everything. There should be no restraints. You know, uh, the Canadian Premier, Monsieur Justin Trudeau, he said a few years ago, openly, publicly, he really admired the Chinese government, which is communist, a dictatorship. I mean, it's the epitome in the world today of an elite group of intellectual, well-educated technocrats who run the show, and. Monsieur Trudeau was quite frank in saying, you know, this is great. They can change things right away. Uh, Hmm. They don't have to go through all these messy checks and balances, or like in his case, uh, have to deal with a parliament. Um, So uh, Marxists believe that uh, you want an all-powerful government. American Marxists see the American Constitution as the worst impediment of all, the ultimate stumbling block to the achievement of a true Marxian Revolution and a, and a Marxist government, uh, and this is why Marxists want to destroy all of our statues, not just Confederate, and they want to completely sully all of American history. If you look at the most uh, influential uh, American public high school American history textbook in recent decades, it's Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Well, Howard Zinn was a member of the American Communist Party, which is totally controlled by Moscow. And Howard Zinn, uh, in his uh, history book, completely trashes American history. And when Dennis Prager interviewed Howard Zinn, uh, not too long before he died, uh, and and Prager asked him, so uh, did America do more good or more bad in history? And Zinn said probably more bad. Well, communists want to so completely besmirch all of American history that young people, traditionally the most passionate, idealistic uh, age group, will conclude, well, America is such a rotten, evil, racist, sexist, homophobic place that we don't really have any history or historical institutions worth preserving. So communists must destroy our founding fathers. They must destroy our constitution as an inherently racist, sexist, oppressive document. Uh, The late Supreme Court Justice, the leftist Ruth Bader Ginsburg said uh, that were she advising third world peoples, she would say, do not look at the U.S. Constitution as a model. Look at the South African Constitution, where affirmative action is mandated constitutionally. And the whole modern diversity, inclusion, and equity movement Die as uh, Canadian philosopher Jordan Peterson calls it. That's rooted in Marxism. The notion that no, Paul, it doesn't matter that you scored the highest uh, on you know some uh, uh, employment uh, application exam. It doesn't matter that you have the best grade point average. It doesn't matter that you have the best recommendations or the best uh, uh, you know uh, work history. Uh, you're not the right color, or you're not the right sex, or uh, you're not the right this or that. In other words, you're judged based on groups. We're going to have equality of results. That's what equity is. That's what communism is. You will uh, get rid of all private property, and uh, you have equality of results for all. And that is completely antithetical to freedom, to individualism. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think we can most learn from Karl Marx and his theory of Marxism?
2: (laughs) The dangers of absolutism, of having a simplistic worldview, of seeing life, and really anything on this planet in terms of just basic black and white, good and evil. Uh, the, the day I think that we should realize that Marxism uh, should instruct us as to the dangers of giving absolute power to anybody. Lord Acton was right centuries ago that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, I can tell you, having been in academia for 33 and a half years, uh, the last people in the world I would want running the country are academics. Uh, I can't think of any other class of people who are more out of touch with everyday reality. Uh, I can't think of any more secular people, any more arrogant or elitist people. And there are a lot of great professors. Uh, You know, my father's a wonderful professor. I mean, he's my role model in life. I mean, um, so there are a lot of good professors. But as a class, I think that there is something about well-educated academic elites that lends itself in all too many cases, to some real arrogant elitism, some real contempt for the masses. Um, and, uh, you know, Lenin, going back to Rousseau, Rousseau and then Lenin, uh, they saw, I mean, L- Rousseau thought that there should be an intellectual elite speaking on behalf of the masses. Lenin saw the Bolshevik party as the Vanguard of the proletariat—that the, the masses, the the, the blue collar workers, the the farm workers were too ignorant to know what was best for them. Uh, uh, communists would say that they uh, were prisoners of false consciousness, and so you know that's that's completely consonant, totally consistent with Marxism. The notion that there is a credentialed, edu- overeducated elite that really knows best for everybody, and if we would all just stop thinking of ourselves as individuals and just embrace this Marxist program, everything will just be fine. We just have to trust, we have to have faith in the enlightened ideas and ideals of these elites. Uh, But of course the reality is that everywhere communism has ever been tried, it has been an absolute, to and proof, unmitigated disaster. Um, My goodness, uh, economically, Wow. Uh, All these communist countries had to become totalitarian, as we mentioned earlier, to prevent an anti-communist revolution because they made the quality of life, the standard of living, so much worse for their peoples, typically. I mean, Chairman Mao presided over the great famine of the late 1950s, early 1960s, in which it's estimated anywhere from between 20 and 42 million people Starved to death. My sweet Cheyenne grew up in Beijing, which was the capital at the time and where you had more food than any other city. She, as a young child at that time, saw little boys with, she, she couldn't understand why they had fat bellies when food was so scarce. But of course, they were starving to death. Mm. You know, they had distended bellies. And uh, my goodness, uh, if we look at, if we contrast Taiwan, with China, with mainland China, Taiwan has had a far, far higher standard of living. At one point, when when Mao was still in charge of China, little Hong Kong, which is I call it the New York City of the Orient. I mean, I I love it. Little Hong Kong had literally a larger GDP, gross domestic product, a bigger economy than a billion communist Chinese people had on the mainland. If you look at uh, East and West Berlin. When I went to East and West Berlin in August of 1990, the Berlin Wall had come down the previous November 9th. And so the, the two Germanys were reuniting. They hadn't even officially reunited. They, they would officially reunite, I think, on October 2nd, 1990. A couple of months. But they were all living under the same government now, but they were still two totally separate societies. West Berlin was just... A cornucopia of colors, it was a kaleidoscope of, of colors, you know, uh, vibrant people everywhere. East Berlin was nothing but black and white and gray. Hmm. And all the bombed-out parts of Berlin that had never been rebuilt from World War II were in East Berlin. West Berlin had been totally raised. It was all modern and shiny and gleaming. Frankly, the historian in me, I loved East Berlin more because you you, you could see so much more actual physical history, architecturally. Uh, the people of West Berlin were dressed colorfully, and they were loud and vivacious. The, the East Berliners were very quiet, and they walked hunched over. I mean, they It was a, just a very quiet, almost like a ghost town society. We were the only people, my two friends and I, we were the only people... In Karl Marx Square, <laughs> no one else would go. Um, hmm. And my goodness, even on the train going from West Germany to East Germany, as soon as you crossed into East Germany, the fields weren't as green, the cattle weren't nearly as fat. Everything was much worse. Hmm. And still today, in I mean, the ultimate contrast between a free capitalist society and a communist uh, enslaved dictatorship, would be in Korea. Now, in Korea, the Korean people on the Korean Peninsula are they are the same people, North and South, historically, religiously, linguistically, racially, ethnically, culturally. They are the same people. So there's never been a better case, clear-cut case of showing, illustrating the effects of communism than in Korea. It has only been since 1945 that The people in North Korea are living under a brutal communist dictatorship. The people in South Korea are living in a capitalist society. And since the late 1980s, a a small-D democratic society, too. If you look at a satellite map in the year of our Lord, 2022 A.D., at night over the Korean Peninsula, South Korea is completely lit up. It is just uh, a, a magnificent big island of prosperity. North Korea has just a few lights over the whole hmm. northern part of the Korean Peninsula, all centered around Pyongyang, the capital. And for many years now, we have seen literally micro human microevolution in effect along the Korean Peninsula. For years now, the average South Korean adult stands over six inches taller in height than the average North Korean adult. Wow. Yes. So people who can't vote with a ballot, vote with their feet and try to come to South Korea. And this is why in every case I'm aware of where you have a communist dictatorship, in every such case, the communist government has to have some kind of border wall or machine gun nest, guard dogs, uh, guards with machine guns, etc., fences all along its borders, uh, the borders between the communist government, communist nation, and the free nation. I'm not aware of any exception to that rule. Cuba would be the only exception that comes to mind, but Cuba. And I think this is a big reason why the Cuban revolution was never overthrown after over 60 years. It's because it's an island. Hmm. But still, I have taught people, I've taught two young ladies whose families, they grew up in Cuba, their families illegally built a big raft so that they would risk shark-infested waters to come here. And for decades now, you know what's illegal for any Cuban to have? a compass, and an inner tube. Mm. So telling. Exactly. So absolutely, even though Marxism has not come to America or Western Europe or most of the world, and indeed, thank God, uh, since the early 1990s, since late 89, early 1990s, um, we no longer have a communist dictatorship in Russia or the Ukraine or Belarus and so many of the you know, the, the former Soviet republics, or uh, Eastern and Central Europe. Still, we, we have communism in a number of countries today, uh, if not economically, certainly politically. In China, uh, we have communism in Venezuela and Cuba. Um, and uh, we, we also have so many communist-influenced regimes around the world, especially today in Uruguay. Uh, and we see in Canada today, the Trudeau government shows how quickly and easily a socialist government can devolve into a communist government. Uh, The Trudeau uh, regime, of course, has uh, just over the last week, uh, we're we're speaking today on February 19th, 2022, uh, earlier this week, the Trudeau regime uh, order invoked, I think it's the National Emergencies Act uh, in in, uh, uh, Canada, which gives the trudeau government the authority to uh order the banks which it has done to freeze all the financial assets of anybody uh, peacefully protesting uh in uh ottawa the capital of canada against uh the covid mask mandates uh, vaccine mandates that kind of thing uh in canada that have been imposed by the trudeau government so uh and and quite frankly uh i, I don't think there's any question but that marxism Uh, pushed uh, people like uh, John Stuart Mill in the mid-late 19th century, uh, liberals like Mill further to the left to embrace more socialism, and uh, so the Labour Party of Britain would become the Labour Socialist Party. Um, And gosh, uh, Eugene Debs was clearly heavily influenced by Marx when he was jailed for leading the Uh, uh, Pullman Railroad strike in 1894. Well, in prison there's a library, and he discovered Marx and and became much more leftist, uh, even though he officially led the American Socialist Party. He was really a Marxist. Um, And so, I don't think there's that much difference between socialism and Marxism. Hmm. Um, Marx himself said that socialism is just a pit stop between capitalism and communism. And the objectivist capitalist, libertarian uh, philosopher Ayn Rand, who was an immigrant, a refugee from uh, Leninist, Stalinist Russia in the 1920s when she came here, uh, she would later write that uh, there is no real difference between socialism and communism. That uh, uh, both seek to enslave mankind, albeit by different means. Uh, Socialism Uh, Seeks to do it uh, voluntarily uh, through the vote. Communism does it through force. Uh, Socialism uh, gives us uh, communism by suicide. Uh, uh, Communism gives us uh, slavery uh, by force Mm. by murder. Uh, So um, there, the socialist, uh, the history of socialism has been heavily impacted by communism as well, and still is.
1: Well, Dr. Young, thank you very much for giving us this talk about Karl Marx and Marxism. Uh, we should also mention that there's a recent novel, which you came on oh, to talk about.
2: bless your heart. Thank you,
1: Paul. Deep in the Forest is the title, which I also I wrote a review of.
2: Thank you very, very much.
1: Yes, sir. So people can get that on Amazon. They can get it
2: on... Uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, Apple, I believe, uh, Speedy Hymn, uh, Boconos, uh, a bunch of sites, Target, uh, a bunch of uh, online sites. I'm so blessed. Uh, this is my first novel. Um, it uh, was published uh, last year, and it has just gotten uh, unanimously positive press, I never imagined, never dared to dream that it would get such a great reaction. Uh, Last I checked, it's gotten uh, 44 uh, reviews on Amazon, uh, all of which are positive, about 40 or five-star raves. I'm very grateful to you for your very positive review. Um, uh, People have told me how much they loved it, ranging from age 12 to 92, literally. Wow. Um, And uh, it's a real fun dramedy. Uh, People have told me they've laughed uh, out loud a lot at it. Um, it's a present-day, southern uh, story uh, It takes place in a small town involving a high school history teacher who has a, an experience in the woods one night, and he doesn't know if he encountered a UFO or what, and uh, local townspeople are wondering what he experienced, and, and he's kind of treated a little differently based on this experience, and uh, it's ultimately a story about courage. Uh, But it involves a lot of uh, family dynamics and friendship and even some romance and, as I said, a whole lot of humor. And uh, I've got a second novel uh, coming out hopefully later this year.
1: Oh, great. You have a title for it?
2: Due South. Due South. And like uh, Deep in the Forest, uh, Due South uh, takes place in the present day in a small southern town. Uh, It's another dramedy, a comedy drama. Um But, for all the similarities between the two books, uh, Due South, I think, is a lot more ambitious uh, because it has a whole lot more characters, uh, whereas Deep in the Forest is dominated by one central character. Due South has three dominant characters and a whole lot of supporting characters with, frankly, a lot of subplots uh, that don't even necessarily heavily feature the main characters. Uh, at one point, I considered uh, right, putting out a collection of short stories, but I there, were, there was enough linkage hmm. between the various uh, stories that I linked them as, as chapters, so there is a coherent theme to the second novel. The second novel also has a whole lot more romance, it's more of a romantic comedy. The second novel doesn't have any potential science fiction or UFO elements like Deep in the Forest does, although this is not a science fiction book. Um, uh, Do South also really highlights the importance of courage as well. And they're both fun reads. Do South is the more realistic, I would say. Um, but hopefully they're both grounded, overwhelmingly in reality, I hope.
1: Well, Dr. Young, a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, Paul. I'm so grateful to you for all the interviews that you've blessed me with. Uh, I've been blessed to be interviewed by a lot of people over the course of my career, um, mostly newspaper writers and uh, and students. And, and you are, of course, a former student, and uh, you are by far my favorite uh, interviewer because like Dick Cavett, you provide really solid questions, but they're open-ended enough to let the interviewee really sort of run with them. And like Cabot, you don't interrupt. Uh, you let the interviewer sort of spin his own tail and you know, if he's not careful, you know, hang, give himself enough rope to hang himself with. But you really, uh, you come up with good penetrating questions and you force by, by not interrupting and by letting your interviewee know he's not gonna be interrupted, the interviewee knows I have to really think very seriously about that, that you're not going to reinforce what I'm going to say, that you're going to, you know, I have to prove what I'm going to say. <laughs> I have to really back it up. And you force me to think out loud, to be really in the moment, more so than, in any, than with any other uh, interviewers I've ever uh, encountered. And I'm very grateful for that. You really helped me refine my own thinking. And uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you. You're very welcome. You burned
2: it.
1: Cheers. Cheers.
0: Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepauleslie.com. That's thepauleslie.com. Click on support the show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primorano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primorano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.